He said, I wonder which of us amongst the members of this church will be the first to die. Who will go to be with the Lord first? And if you're a believer, I trust you don't take that to be a perverse, morbid, inappropriate sort of question to ask in public, something in poor taste. I just committed a faux pas. Uh, Christians must escape the cultural mindset that refuses to look at death and to plan for death and to live in light of death, to expect death. Uh, One day, all of us together as a church family, less one, will be standing in a cemetery gathered around a new headstone. And as the body of our brother or sister in Christ is lowered into the earth, dust to dust, we will, in that moment, we will be encouraging one another with the hope of the gospel. As we sing the word of God, as we pray and read the word of God, as we hear the word of God preached. Because as Christians, as Christians, we know for the believer in Jesus Christ, although death remains an enemy, an outrage, a sign of judgment, a reminder of sin and a formidable opponent. From another perspective, it's the portal through which we pass to consummated life. We pass through death and death dies. Indeed, from one perspective, death is a great blessing. Beloved, we must bring our mortality out into the open. We must think theologically about death. The teacher tells us, In Ecclesiastes 7, 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every person. The living should take this to heart. And by God's grace, that's what I want us, the living, to do this morning, taking this truth to heart. Death is the destiny of every person. What is death? According to the dictionary, death is the permanent termination of the biological functions that sustain a living organism. And that's true, medically speaking, but it's only a a small, small part of the overall biblical picture, isn't it? And it, it hides, that definition hides a lot more than it reveals. It's like saying Adolf Hitler was a political leader in Germany and then just leaving it that. There's a lot more that needs to be discussed. The medical definition of death, the permanent termination of the biological functions that sustain a living organism, isn't connected with the reality of a created order in rebellion against God under the frustration of the curse. All that's ignored. What's lacking in that dictionary definition is the historical teleological plot line of the Bible, right? Beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, all the way through to the end, the book of Revelation, the new heavens and new earth, including eternal hell. Friends, there is life beyond the grave. Our bodies will rise again. And in that resurrected state, we will be judged by the exalted Christ who himself died. And rose from the tomb. But outside that biblical framework, a mere medical definition of death hides much more than it reveals, and actually it actively deludes, and it offers no hope. 
Our Lord Jesus said to Martha outside her brother's tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If the Lord should grant us years, then one day we're going to find ourselves in a hospital. And the doctor will be telling us that the cancer has metastasized. The heart disease is too far progressed. An operation is impossible. And then we'll be able to perceive, like never before, the death sentence we've been living under all our lives. And unless the Lord returns in our lifetimes, all of us, every single one of us, will face that situation as as impossible as it seems right now. Because if we're Christians... And because of our view of reality, because our view of reality is based on what God has revealed in the Holy Scriptures, then we'll know, even as we're dying, that what we're experiencing isn't because the universe just went off the rails, or we're just plain unlucky, or God fell asleep at the switch, or now we're reaping karma. We die because we're sinners. Each of us. We're responsible participants in our own death. Death isn't just something that happens to a person. It's nothing as clinical as the biological functions that sustain a living organism have been permanently terminated. We die because our sinful transgression has attracted God's just wrath. And in our death is God's personal and judicial reaction to the transgression in which we have responsibly, culpably indulged. Friends, I want to bring our mortality out into the open today. God wants us to do that. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And my plan is to unpack the significance of those two verses this morning in the light of the larger picture, larger story of Scripture, not just the book of Ecclesiastes. As you can see in the outline of your bulletin, we're going to work through three separate texts. Our subject today is death. These three passages take place at different points in redemptive history. Genesis 3, the fall. Mark 15, Jesus' crucifixion. And 1 Thessalonians 4, the resurrection of the saints at the return of Christ. And we'll see our perspective of death changes depending on where we're at in the Bible storyline. As the plot progresses, God reveals more and more and more. Which means by the sermon's conclusion, by God's grace, instead of having an under-the-sun secularist perspective of our own mortality, we'll have the revealed perspective of God himself, our creator. Friends, we don't want to resort to thinking about the all-important topic of death with merely unaided human wisdom. Our own pitiful existential wranglings 
What a mistake that would be. What does Holy Scripture say? And so the first question we need to ask is this. Why death? Why don't we just live forever? In God's universe, which he created good and perfect, why do the biological functions that sustain his divine image bearers terminate? And to find our answer, we need to begin at the beginning, the book of Genesis. So turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 3. This is the part of the Bible story where we learn about the historical event, not the mythological event, the historical event Christians call the fall. The fall refers to the transition of the first human beings, Adam and Eve, from a state of innocent obedience to God to a state of guilty disobedience to God. Uh, Though, as I've suggested in the past, perhaps a better title would be the satanic, anarchistic, autonomous, de-godding revolution. Because that's what it was. The fall sounds very innocuous. Uh, We've already learned from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the universe, which means God is distinct from his creation. And what God created was entirely good. And human beings enjoy the unique privilege, the unique responsibility of being creatures made in God's image and likeness. We are God's prime ministers over his creation. But God is king. And our first parents, Adam and Eve... They walked with God in the cool of the day, in the paradise that he created for them. Their divine fellowship and intimacy with God is full. It's complete. Uh, that, that Grand Canyon at the center of their souls that we've been talking about these past weeks is gloriously filled to the brim with the glory of the triune God. But perhaps the most important entailment of the doctrine of creation, certainly as it relates to death, is this. It grounds all human responsibility. Friends, if we were created out of dust by God, that means we don't have the right to live our lives as we see fit. We're not autonomous. As Don Carson notes, for us to imagine ourselves autonomous, far from being a measure of our maturity is the supreme mark of our rebellion, the flag of our suppression of the truth. And the plain fact of it is, every time we sin, we seek to overthrow that authority structure. Adam and Eve sought to overthrow God's authority in the Garden of Eden. And through their rebellion, the world over which they ruled fell under the curse of God. Adam's sin introduced Death to everyone. It says, Phil read for us this morning in Romans 5.12, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now whether the serpent merely symbolizes the devil or actually embodies the devil, we don't really know for sure, but we do know he's not an autonomous being. He's a, he's a creature. God made him. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Of course, God said no such thing. There's just one tree in all of paradise whose fruit they are forbidden to eat. 
anything else, anything else that comes into their innocent imaginations. Adam and Eve are free to indulge in to their heart's content, anything. But what Satan zeroes in on is that one thing, God's one prohibition in the entire universe for them. I really appreciate how Ray Ortland describes what's happening here. In verses 1 to 5, Satan is drawing Eve into a reconsideration of her whole life. The serpent inquires in astonishment and disbelief. Prime Minister Eve, something's bothering me. Is it really true that God has forbidden you from eating any of the fruit from any of the trees in all the Garden of Eden? That perplexes me. After all, didn't he pronounce everything very good? And hasn't he put both you and Prime Minister Adam in charge of it all? Our loving creator wouldn't impose so severe a limitation on you, would he? I don't understand, Eve. Would you please explain this problem to me? And so the serpent engages Eve in a reevaluation of her whole life, but it's on his terms. What a killjoy God is. You know, what, what an unreasonable demand he's making here. What he's hinting at, of course, is that Adam and Eve have the right to rebel. They have the right to stand in judgment of God's word. He, he's nibbling around the edges of anarchistic, autonomous, de-godding revolution. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, You may eat fruit. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that is just a flat out contradiction of what God says in chapter 2, verse 17. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. So what Satan is denying here is the doctrine of judgment. Satan is tempting Eve into thinking that it's actually safe to rebel against God. There are no consequences for rebelling against God. And then in verse 5, the devil promises an advance on innocence, right? An advance on innocence, something better, something more desirable than being innocent. By throwing off the shackles of their creatureliness, by rebelling, our parents will open themselves to a greater moral consciousness. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And, and there's a, a half-truth in that lie, but it's still a lie because God knows about good and evil from the outside. He knows it from omniscience. But we learn about it from the inside, don't we? We learn about evil by being evil. So, what we have here is a lie so big, it overturns an entire worldview. To become like God, to be a dependent creature, no longer... All of this will be achieved by defying God. Friends, what we're reading here isn't a matter simply of Adam and Eve eating from the apple tree when they were supposed to only eat from the banana tree. And then mean old God, he overreacted. And so now, according to Christian mythology, we live in a world with devastating tsunamis, Joseph Stalin, famine, war, rape, and Lou Gehrig's disease. No, what our first parents did by eating this fruit was no misdemeanor. 
Satan is not inviting our parents to break a single rule, but to begin a revolution. To become themselves the very center of the universe. To say, I will be God. I will determine for myself what constitutes good and evil. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, there's been a loss of innocence. Our parents realize they're naked. And Adam realizes he sat by as his wife was tempted by the serpent. He did nothing. He was complicit in cosmic anarchy. He sat in judgment over against God, not fearing God's judgment, arrogating to himself the status of God. And now he's awakened from his feverish dream of sin. And then like their Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And that might be the most tragic picture of loss depicted in the entire Bible. From what heights humanity has fallen. There's, there's nothing we can compare this to. But imagine, just imagine after the resurrection of being in the new heavens, new earth, and having this sort of response to God's holy presence. Oh no, it's God. Quick, hide. One of the results of this sinful guilt is broken fellowship with God. And for the remainder of their earthly existence, which in Adam's case was 930 years, the man and woman are constantly reminded that God has adopted a new stance towards them. His relationship with them has changed. It's merciful, it's benevolent, but there's no longer peace. Yes, Adam and Eve are image bearers of the holy God, but they are also now slaves of sin. They've tried to de-God God, and they continue to do so with every sin. They keep trying to assert their autonomy, to live life apart from reference to their creator God. They're idolaters, as we all are. Chapter 3, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And now our parents do the blame shift game. That the prime ministers of planet Earth have rebelled against the sovereign king. So the man blames both God and his wife. And the woman exonerates herself by blaming the snake who deceived her. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
And now God pronounces sentence on the man and the woman, and his curses are very striking. The first, in 3.16, promises pain in childbearing, which is actually the disruption of the first designated tasks humans were assigned before the fall. Be fruitful and multiply. There's also the curse of a disordered marriage. God gives the woman up to the sinful desire to have her way with her husband. Her, he hands her over to the misery of competition with her mate. The second judgment in 17 to 19 promises painful toil and a disordered ecology, which is a disruption of the second designated task God's image bearers were assigned before the fall, ruling over the created order and living in harmony with it. But look closely at verse 19. In judgment for our sin, human beings are no longer immortal. Verse 19 is our death warrant. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Friends, our own mortality is a sermon preached to us by God. In our deaths, God tells us, how is it that you've arrogated to yourself the kind of sinful autonomy that's characterized your life? I created the human race from dust, yet human beings have swaggered around my creation, breathing my air, eating my food, their hearts full of anarchy and rebellion against my rightful rule. With perfect justice, I might have destroyed your rebel breed instantly. With your every thought and action, you personally have sought to de-God me, to overthrow my rightful rule. You have sinned against me. Your sin must be punished. And the punishment for sin is death. But, but, Genesis 3, 15, that most blessed of verses. This takes place during God's curse of the serpent. God promises, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. And that's what's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel. God promises the solution in that verse. And God provides the solution, a solution purposed in his grace from eternity past, and which he announces to his sinful image bearers mere moments after their God-defying treason. Listen to me, everyone. We have a sin problem. That's what constitutes the irreducible heart of all the wretchedness and evil in this world. Sin and the just curse of God that we have attracted by our rebellion. We are a damned race. So read verse 15, sinner, and weep with joy. Praise God. From the woman, from the human race, will ultimately come the seed, the victorious offspring, who will crush the serpent's head. He will crush the serpent's head by taking our guilt and our shame upon himself. Our only hope as a fallen race is God's merciful promise to defeat our enemy. 
a promise which he will accomplish through the woman giving birth, through human instrumentality. By going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy this serpent, this devil, who holds people captive under, the, under sin and shame and guilt and death. It's as if God were saying, Adam and Eve, I have in my eternal purposes chosen to reconcile a multitude of people to myself through the person of my son, Jesus Christ. For this multitude whom I have elected, my son will become a man. He will be the last Adam, the new representative of my people. And just as through one man, death came into the world. So through one man, the man Christ Jesus, there will be life. My son will become my people's perfect substitute on that cross, satisfying my divine justice on their behalf. My beloved son's bloody, wrath-absorbing sacrifice will purchase all things necessary to purchase my people's eternal salvation. Satan will merely strike his heel, bruise his heel, but Jesus will crush his head. And that is why God sent his son, Jesus, into the world 2,000 years ago. So let's shift our gaze now to the fulfillment of this promise. Turn to Mark chapter 15, verse 25. This is on page 1022, if you're using our church Bibles. Mark 15, 25. Where are we? Calvary's Hill, 2,000 years ago. It was nine in the morning. When they crucified Jesus, the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Verse 33. At noon, which means our Lord has been on the cross for three hours now. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now understand, this isn't just some random meteorological event in the Bible, in places like Deuteronomy 28, 29, Jeremiah 15, 9. Darkness during the day is recognized, it's a recognized mark of God's displeasure, of God's, dis, of his judgment. You see, this supernatural cosmic blackness hints at the deep Judgment taking place right there on the cross. It speaks of God's wrath falling upon his unique son for our sin. Sin which at this very moment, Jesus is bearing in his own body on the tree. And out of this darkness of God's judgment comes Jesus' loud cry of desolation. Verse 34, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Mark's gospel, God the Father twice speaks from heaven to Jesus, his beloved son. Once is at his baptism and once at his transfiguration. But at this most critical and desperate of moments, there's only silence. 
Brothers and sisters, God does not deliver Jesus from the cross, as people were taunting him to do that very thing. He does not deliver his son from the cross because he hasn't finished killing him yet for our sin. God's holy wrath isn't spent yet. And so in the infinite, the infinite filth of our sin, which Jesus bears in our place, it compels God the Father to turn his face away from God the Son. Make no mistake, Jesus doesn't just feel forsaken by his Father. It's not that Jesus experiences a passing sensation of alienation and rejection. He is forsaken. On the cross, the eternal Son is utterly rejected and forsaken by the eternal Father because he has become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 It's astounding. It's astounding. There's, there is disruption in the heretofore eternally perfect intra-triune relationship between Father and Son. Not unlike, in some small sense, the disruption in perfect intimacy, intimacy Adam and Eve experienced after the fall when they were hiding in the bushes. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this desperate cry, beloved, the horror of sin and the cost of salvation is revealed. In this cry, the wrath of God and the love of God meet in a way they never, ever will again in this fallen world. Here, friends, is our one lifeboat. There are no other saviors. There is no other salvation. To put it in very blunt, yet grace-saturated terms, Jesus gives his great cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, so that we don't have to scream those words forever in hell. And it's a striking thing that immediately after Jesus breathes his last, Mark informs us of the temple curtain being torn in two. With a loud cry, verse 37, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It's, it's almost like a cutaway edit in a film, isn't it? Jesus breathes his last, and then the next verse geographically displaces us to a new scene inside the temple in Jerusalem. We stay here for only one verse, but as we do, something occurs that signals an epochal shift in the history of salvation. We're standing now before the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies. The one place on earth where God's special revelatory presence dwells above the Ark of the Covenant. No one may enter into this sacred dwelling except the high priest once a year and never without blood. This is the Holiest, and it's the most dangerous place on the planet. This is God's earthly throne room. And Jesus, with a loud cry, he breathes his last. Our Lord dies, and the protective curtain is torn from top to bottom, revealing the Holy of Holies. And when these two verses are read together, we realize that the death of the Son of God and the function of the Old Testament temple are connected. The tearing of the temple curtain, that signals full, 
free, unmediated access into the presence of the holy God. An access possible only because our sin has been paid for and the just judgment of God has been averted from us to Jesus. Jesus dies, and now we have access to God into his unmediated presence. And now our righteous and holy God can justify the ungodly. Because in Jesus' death, mercy and justice are perfectly reconciled. The curse of God is righteously executed, and we are mercifully saved. But do you see how this links up with Genesis 3.15? From the woman, from the human race, has come the conquering seed, the victorious offspring, the one who crushes the serpent's head. Jesus crushes the serpent's head by taking our guilt and our shame upon himself. By going to the cross, Jesus has ultimately destroyed this serpent, this devil, who holds people captive under sin, shame, guilt, and death. But when Jesus redeemed a people for himself on that cross, when Jesus brought us out of bondage to sin and Satan and death, he didn't just redeem our souls. He redeemed us as whole persons, you see, this is essential. The redemption Jesus purchased for us at Golgotha includes the redemption of our physical bodies, our physical bodies, which means our redemption will not be complete until our bodies are entirely set free from the effects of the fall and brought to the state of perfection for which God created them. And when does that day occur? When Jesus returns and his people are raised from death. That day, the Bible calls our glorification. The day Jesus returns and we receive our immortal, imperishable bodies. That's the day we are glorified. And the day of our glorification will be a great day of victory. Because on that day, the last enemy, death will be defeated, will be destroyed. So, in our full-orbed understanding of death, if we would be wise men and women who fear the Lord and who look at the reality of death from the larger perspective of Holy Scripture, we need to look in salvation, historical sequence. I'm arguing today the fall in the garden, Jesus' death on the cross, and the day of our glorification at Christ's return. So if you would, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is on page 1188. Point number three in your bulletins. We must see Jesus' parousia, his coming, and our glorification for what it truly is. Jesus' full victory over sin and the grave. Let me ask this. Why should anyone have hope in the face of death? instead of just grim despair, or at best, c'est la vie, steel-jawed resignation. How is it that Christians may have true, true hope, even in the face of death? 
The reason is that Jesus' resurrection has launched the final resurrection of all the saints. That's why. That's how. The apostle writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The main reason Christians can maintain hope in the face of death's devastating loss is because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And the inevitable result of believing that Jesus died and rose is the belief that God will subsequently raise to life all who have been united with him. Over and over, the Bible tells us the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of the believer's resurrection. In fact, those two events are so intimately connected that Paul can tell the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15 that the denial of our bodily resurrection on the last day constitutes a denial of Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago. He actually works backwards. But that's how we can have hope, even in the midst of death. We have to think theologically about this because when Jesus returns to earth to consummate his kingdom, the souls of those Christians who have died in him, those people who have put their trust solely in his finished cross work, the souls of those Christians will return with him to earth to be reunited with their glorified resurrection bodies. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the Greek word that's used for coming in verse 15 is parousia. We who are still alive, who are left to the parousia, the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's a term rooted in the first century. And Paul uses that word deliberately because everybody knew what it could mean in certain contexts. In the first century, parousia was a term used to refer to the glorious coming of the official sovereign to a city. Caesar, perhaps, or a king who himself was often honored as divine in the culture. An imperial visit, or parousia, was an occasion for great pomp, with magnificent celebrations, with rich banquets, speeches that praised the imperial visitor, a visit to the local temple, rich donations, celebrations of games, sacrifices, statues were erected, arches and other buildings were constructed, money was minted to commemorate the event, crowns of gold were given out, And sometimes a new era was inaugurated. And when this great dignitary came to a city, the officials and a multitude of citizens would head out of the city to receive him, all dressed in special clothing. In this text, it's Jesus coming back to earth. It's his parousia that's being discussed. But the Thessalonians 
were apparently thinking only the living Christians would have the honor of going out to meet the Lord Jesus in his royal and triumphant coming. Only the living. So the Apostle Paul is responding to this fear by saying it won't just be the living who go out to meet the Lord. In fact, in fact, the dead in Christ will rise first and they will have the place of honor in the procession. And recognition of this fact would give the living believers great comfort in their grief. Brothers and sisters, this text is for the funeral home. It's for the memorial service. It's for the graveside. It's for those nights when the believer wakes up in an empty bed because their Christian spouse of 50 years has died and they need God's comfort. The picture presented here is of the royal coming of Jesus. He's coming down from his throne in heaven to earth to rule eternally with his saints. He's coming to consummate his royal kingdom. And the church, as the official delegation, goes out to meet Jesus with the dead in Christ rising from their graves and heading up the procession as the most honored. One coming of our Lord is here envisioned, which unites the coming king with his loyal subjects. This, beloved, this is our glorious hope. Verse 16, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That means the coming of the Lord will occur amid a great amount of heavenly noise as God gives his order that the dead be raised. First, there will be a loud command, which is a command that must be obeyed because it's the exalted Christ giving the command. Jesus says in John 5, 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Jesus will give his divine command And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead will not remain in their tombs and lose the opportunity of going out to receive the sovereign Lord in the clouds. Before the grand entourage goes out, they will be raised to life. And they will have the place of privilege in this grand procession, which is described in verse 17. After that, we are still alive and our life will be caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now it's the turn of those Christians who are still alive when Jesus returns to go meet their Lord. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our earthly bodies will change into glorified resurrection bodies, just like that. And together with those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, the entire people of God will go out in procession to meet our sovereign Lord. And what is the result of this meeting of our Lord in the clouds in the air? 17b. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And now, loved ones, now we have the canonical context, the whole Bible picture to understand what the teacher means in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Turn there. Ecclesiastes 7, 1 and 2. 
The teacher writes, a good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every person. The living should take this to heart. In Israel, someone's name wasn't just a label, as it is for many of us. You know, you have the Quinn label, you have the Phoebe label. That's, that doesn't mean anything, yes, that's your label. <laughs> uh, it was intended to express underlying nature. And so in verse 1, the teacher is talking about a reputation which flows from character. A good name is better than fine perfume. Now, when it comes to smell, some men, to put it diplomatically, are the au naturel types. Some women, too. Let's be egalitarian about this, right? There seems to be a lot of people who don't realize this, so let me just make a public service announcement. Right? We all need to be wearing deodorant. You're not the exception, friend. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really the inner reputation that's more important than the outer smell in the grand scheme. A good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death, better than the day of birth. And in the same way, a funeral is better than a baby shower. Why? Because going to a funeral forces us to think about death. We can't escape that corpse that's at the front of the room at a funeral, at a wake. And for a brief moment, for a brief moment, people's minds are focused on the inevitability of death. For a brief moment, we see the reality that this funeral anticipates my own funeral. One day I'll be laid out in that coffin. For a brief moment in the house of mourning, that certainty penetrates the sinful fog of denial. Have you noticed? People post pictures of their newborn babies on social media, but no one posts pictures of funerals they've been to, of corpses and coffins. In a sense, that's too bad. Because it's the funeral that gets people asking the ultimate questions of life. It is better, verse 2, to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. But then we must go beyond just taking it to heart. We must go beyond merely coming to terms with our mortality. That's not enough. That's not sufficient. Anybody under the sun can do that. What we need is to be guided by God's wisdom. We need to see human mortality from the biblical perspective. We must see our death for what it truly is. It's God's judgment against our sin. And then we must see Jesus' death for what it truly is. God's judgment against our sin. And then we must see Jesus' coming, his parousia, and our glorification for what it truly is. Jesus' full victory over sin and the grave. A good name is better 
than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Amen. Let's pray. I'm going to, I'm going to pray Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years, or 80, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.